Broadcasting from the commodity capital of the world, Zurich, Switzerland, this is Insider's Guide to Energy. This edition to Insider's Guide to Energy is brought to you by Fidectus. Go to www.fidectus.com for more information. Welcome to Insider's Guide to Energy. I'm your host, Chris Sass, and this week I am super excited to have with us the author of Shorting the Grid, Meredith England. Meredith, welcome to the program. Very happy to be here, Chris. Thank you. Well, Meredith, it, it has been such a joy. I've been looking forward to this interview for weeks now. I, I read Shorting the Grid, and it really transformed the way I think of things. So I've been in the energy business a number of years. I've been in this podcast business coming up on three years, and I spend most of my time talking to new and emerging technologies, renewable, uh, energy trans- transformation. And what you learn along the way is you become more and more pragmatic. You start with kind of a, a wide-eyed, we're going to save the world, we're going to do everything. And, and, and then when you realize it's a gray field, there's nothing green field, and it becomes hard to get this transition in place, and it's never as easy as it seems but I always get overly optimistic because I talk to folks, I talk to battery storage companies and grid scale storage, all these things. And when I read your book, what it did is it helped me step back and say, okay, well, where are we today? What policies are in place, especially in the US power grids? Because I think that's really your example really covers the ISOs and, and, and the, the lack of transparency of where it is today. And then what are the consequences of the policies we think we're voting for, or perhaps our representatives are voting for what are the consequences of that? And will we get to the place we want to be? And so what really excites me about today's conversation is to kind of go into that a little bit and share with the audience some of the thinking. So when they hear a policy that says, hey, everybody's going to put solar in, everybody's going to put wind in, and we're going to you know, give some sort of incentives or some sort of tax advantages, this and that, what could that mean to the grid and the stability of the grid? Those are topics I hope we get through in our interview today. So maybe it makes sense to start, though, is how did you come about writing a book about energy? Well, I've been in energy all my life. I I I was a, a, a I got a, a degree in physical chemistry, actually geochemistry, and I, I began working in in uh, geothermal energy to some extent, and also, but I wa- I wanted to work in geothermal energy, but the first job I got was in fossil energy. Of course, there's not that many jobs in geothermal, and I was doing uh, pollution control for uh, gas uh, fired plants, uh, NOx control, and then then I went on to geothermal, and then in geothermal I began working with um, uh, nuclear people, uh, and I hadn't really paid any attention to nuclear because I was all about, you know, I was going to be renewables, and I began to see the uh, virtues of nuclear, and when they asked me to um, to join their group, I did. So there I was, I was in nuclear energy, I had my own consulting company for uh, about 10 years doing uh, corrosion and pollution control con- consulting chemistry, materials, materials, not the grid, materials. And then when I came out here, um, uh, I began writing a blog in favor of my local nuclear plant, uh, Vermont Yankee, and someone who read the blog said, hey, you should join the consumer liaison group for the um, 
grid operator for ISO New England because you write about the grid every now and again. And I did. In my blog, something would come up about the power plant and I would just say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to write about this, uh, something about the grid and the power plant interaction. I'd write about it in the blog. And so, so uh, I didn't have a great overall view, but I'd, I'd research a little topic, write a blog post and so forth. So then I joined the consumer liaison group. And then I thought, oh my gosh, who knew this stuff was going on? And I began to try and explain it to people who had been following my blog. And it just got to be so thick. I mean, it is so complicated and so uh, non-intuitive. And I thought, I, I, this is not going to work. I'm not going to be able to sit here and for uh, in a 15-minute uh, discussion, describe uh, auctions, capacity auctions, capacity factors, capacity value. People are just going to go, uh, can you go away? So I decided that I needed to put it down somewhere because I couldn't find a book that would explain it to me. I could not. And so I ended up writing. And the other thing is this, I began working with the uh, grid operator, began seeing the decisions being made. I realized the decisions were not leading to a reliable grid. And, and, and I was, I was getting really, uh, uh, discouraged about s- some of the things that happened one winter, which I describe extensively in my book, where we came, the Northeast came very close to having rolling blackouts in very cold weather. And I, I was, I was watching that in real time. And anyway, so then I decided, well, Nobody's going to want to listen to me for five hours about this, so I better put it in a book where they can look it up. Well, I'm glad you did the book. Shorting the Grid was a great read. Um, I found it page-turner. I I, I really enjoyed it. I got tuned in, and and you you talked about all these kind of esoteric subjects, but you do it in a way that simplifies it and makes it really engaging. So so I appreciate it. Thank you for doing that. Um, Thank you. it It was really a pleasure to read. Um, and and you've, you've touched on a couple topics in, in, in your kind of your introduction. You talked about, you know, perhaps rolling blackouts and, and an unstable grid. Um, what, what do you mean by resulting in a stable grid? So we, we always hear the U.S. grid is fragile. That, that's the terminology I, I think I hear the most when we talk about it. And we talk about moving to renewables and sustainable energy. What's your take on that? Are, are we a fragile grid or where, where are we out on the grid? Well, we are becoming a fragile grid, and I could I could just say that there are two major reasons. Okay, the first reason is that um, we have two reasons, and they're connected. We have a lot of renewables on the grid, and the renewables go on and off when they want to, not when we want them to. Okay, so now we have to have something on the grid which will... Um, back up those renewables? What if they go off when we want them to go on? I mean, uh, I I wish everybody could visit a grid operator's uh, control room. Uh, All these people working so hard, looking at, at, at the balancing, because every moment on the grid, the amount of electricity used and the amount of electricity being generated have to be exactly the same. They have to be in balance in real time. And so the thing is that the grid operators are working really hard to keep everything in balance all the time. So now you've got renewables that go on and off at their uh, choice, and they are generally backed up with by what's called uh, fast uh, response resources. And there's really only one fast response resource you can build nowadays, and that's a gas fire plant. 
And there are other things that can be fast response. For example, a very large battery could be fast response. Unfortunately, there the, the very large batteries, even the ones you hear a lot about, are not truly a grid scale. There may be 100 megawatts, uh, but a grid is 6,000 megawatts, even a small uh, grid like ours, okay? Uh, and um, 6 to 10,000. And so 100 megawatt isn't going to help you if you, your grid is mostly wind and the wind just died down. And then the other thing is that, that you can have hydro, but nobody's building hydro. So the only fast response resource available is a gas fire plant. So you say, so what's wrong? Gas is cleaner than, than coal. It, it's not as disruptive to the ecosystem as hydro. Yeah, we want to get rid of it someday because, because of global warming. But in the meantime, it's working great. Well, it isn't because gas is delivered through pipelines. And even if you are right on top of a huge gas reservoir, if the pipeline won't deliver it to the power plant, you don't have gas. Gas is just in time delivery. Unlike nuclear and coal, which are very different, but they have one thing in common. They store the fuel on site. And to a certain extent, a hydro plant with the pond behind it is storing fuel on site. In that case, the fuel is water. But gas plants do not store fuel on site. Gas plants want just-in-time delivery, and sometimes that delivery doesn't happen. Now, in New England, where we're pretty well set up for winter because we have to be, um, that the, the, it doesn't happen, didn't have a whole lot to do with problems per se on the gas lines, but it had to do with the fact that in a very cold weather, homes are using a lot of gas uh, for heating and they have priority. So all of a sudden the power plants couldn't get enough gas and they were dropping out Uh and in Texas, where it isn't as well uh, set up for winter, uh, gas pipelines didn't supply the gas-fired plants because uh, they, they, they had uh, cold problems. That, that is, uh, they, there were frozen valves. Also, the price was going so high that a lot of the power plants was like, if I, if I begin paying for this gas, I'm going to go broke. So they just drop off uh, the grid. Uh, they say, okay, I'm not, I'm not playing. Bye-bye. It was great. Now, one of the things about that is that, as I say in my book, is in the supposedly deregulated areas called the regional transmission organization areas, of which New England and Texas are both, the power plants are merchant generators. They have no obligation to stay on the grid. If they're losing money, they go offline. And yeah, right. That, that's a business decision. Uh, in, in more traditionally regulated areas, uh, a power plant has an obligation to, is part of a bigger system with an obligation to serve the customers. And that, that, I, you see why I wrote a book because I, I just, it ends up being so complicated. What it boils down to is you can't have renewables that go on and off when they want to and back them up with gas, which may not be available in a crunch and have a, a stable grid. It just, it just doesn't work that way. All right. So. So I, I do agree that it's a complex thing to try to cover in a podcast, right? So <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it, it's fantastic. I, I, I think, you know, what I took away from, from what you've talked about so far was, at least in the U.S. system, the way it works is the individual home would get priority for the gas. And when you need it and when it's going to spike up, 
is when the demand is the most. And that's the same time that the power plants are going to want to spike up as well, let's say in a cold spell or something like this. And, and that can be problematic. I also recall that you talked a bit about trying to encourage companies to keep fuel on site. And this was a, as another solution. And you, you, you said, look, coal, uh, perhaps you know, oil or some other fuel could be stored on site, less desirable for the, the environment, but it would be ready to go and, and sitting there, not just in time or your reservoir of water. And I think there was some conversation in your books about regulation and kind of bidding into the, the auctions and how that implemented people's desire to do that or the profitability of doing that. Maybe maybe that makes sense, because that was kind of eye opening for me as well, understanding how that kind of took place. Yes, 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 I agree. Well, the thing is, the auctions, uh, they go a certain way. If, if I bid, if one power plant bids in at, say, $10, another power plant bids in at $20, and another power plant bids in at 30 and they need all uh, three of them, they choose all three of them, and then everybody gets paid the 30 okay? That's called the clearing price. It's the price of the most expensive power plant they need, and they, 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 they get it. Now, when the demand isn't as high, maybe they'll only choose the $10 and $20 power plant. I'm, I'm, I'm using very simple uh, ideas here. Well, if you're a power plant, you want to be chosen as much as possible. So you don't want to be the $30 power plant necessarily because you're only going to be used sometimes. That's called a peaker plant. Maybe you want to run, you know, 80% of the time or 70 or 50, not just when demand is extremely high. So you're not going to do anything that will increase your uh, runtime costs because you would have to bid in higher then. And then you might be the, the, the $25 power plant that doesn't get chosen when they're choosing the $20 ones. So the power plants have very little incentive. If they're a gas-fired power plant, they can store uh, oil, and many of them are what's called dual fuel. That means if I, I can burn gas or I can burn oil, if they begin storing oil, though, they, they, they begin paying for the oil up front, and they may or may not get paid back for it. They may just end up, well, that makes you expensive. Sorry, we're not choosing you. So what happened was that in, in this situation, um, the uh, grid operator, ISO New England, put together a, a winter reliability program where it just went ahead and bought oil that was stored at the power plants and then if they used it, uh, they, they, they paid, paid it back. But if otherwise they didn't, I, I, it's a, it was a complex thing. They always do these complex things. But basically it made sure that there was oil for when there wasn't gas available because the power plants wouldn't pay for it. The grid operator had to say, hey, reliability is important to us and we're doing this for you. And they did this under a, a program called, uh, ancillary, well, it was called the Winter Reliability Project Program, but they have, the grid operator has a whole bunch of things they do uh, to stabilize the grid, such as uh, uh, voltage regulation, uh, frequency regulation, and they, they do that under what's called ancillary services. So this wasn't like such a huge reach for them to, to say, okay, this is another ancillary service we need. But, uh, Unfortunately, if you do, if the grid operator doesn't do that, you can you can have a very very fragile grid, and that is that when the demand is high uh, for um, 
for natural gas, then you may not have natural gas plants going online, which is not good. So what you need is, is to, to do uh, this uh, sort of thing. Uh, Texas was a really interesting uh, version of this because everybody in the, after the Texas blackout, everybody was pointing fingers, your fault. That is, the, the wind failed. No, we couldn't get enough natural gas. No, it was the wind. No, it was natural gas. What happened, it was the sequence. The wind went, failed. The wind went, the wind went away. Uh, natural gas tried to rev up. It couldn't get enough natural gas, and, and some of the things were freezing. Then the natural gas couldn't make up for it, and that's how you got the blackouts there. That was a, a sort of an illustration of fragility, but unfortunately, right here in New England, we practically had the same illustration. So so I think I, I, I get kind of the sequence of what happens. Um, you know, Being someone that does want to see energy transition and, and see a re- renewal you know, renewable sources of energy and understanding there's the pragmatic approach where we are. Um, what What is the true cost then? And, you know, we, we hear that solar and wind have gotten really cheap. I mean, I, I think you could sell, you could probably bid in really inexpensive into these auctions. Oh, yeah, you can, they can ask the grid operator to, they say, they can say to the grid operator, we'll pay you to take our power. I mean, that's really cheap. Right. If, if 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 I were selling apples and I say, please buy my apples, I'll give you a dollar for every apple you buy. That would be really a good deal for you. But the question is, where's that dollar coming from? So where is that dollar coming from and what's the consequence? So I, I, I have an unfair advantage having read your book, but I think I think it's a worth the conversation. Um, so tell us, tell our audience what, what okay. you think that that happens when we do this. So if I've got a negative price for wind energy because it's blowing, it's blowing stink today and I can sell it to you for negative, um, what does that mean? Well, that means that you don't need any money from the grid to run your wind turbine, but you need to be on the grid because you get two forms of payment that aren't from providing electricity. They're just from the fact you're on the grid. And one of them is there's something called the production tax credit, which means that you get uh, usually around, it, it varies, but usually around two cents per kilowatt hour uh, for being online. That's a tax credit. So if you have, if you're a big company and you have to pay taxes, uh, as Warren Buffett said, the, 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 these, these are the reason we build wind turbines, uh, that, because that, that tax credit came, comes right off your tax line and goes right to your bottom line. It's better than a profit because the profit would be taxed. So you, so you get a tax credit and you can also sell something called a renewable energy credit. And that means that, um, You've made a kilowatt hour of renewable energy. You know, you've got two cents from, from, uh, Uncle Sam as a tax credit. Now you can get four or five cents or maybe less, maybe more for, um, selling that credit to somebody who needs it. Now who's somebody who needs it? It's somebody who is like, for example, a distribution utility in a state that says you must buy 25% of your power from renewables. Well, they can't just change everything over that way. I mean, they, they, they've got power plants and stuff. What they do is they go to a, a wind turbine place and say, or actually they go to an exchange where they can buy it and say, hey, I need to buy some of your credits because I'm going to show those credits to my regulators. And then I'll have, I'll satisfy the 25% renewables because I'll have bought so many of your wind turbine credits. 
Well, as you can see, the wind turbine uh, doesn't need any money from the grid. It, it's now getting six cents when grids are usually running at at, at six cents or something, and uh, uh, or two cents or eight cents or it. it it's it, people say, oh, they're the cheapest thing on the grid, but they wouldn't be the cheapest thing on the grid if they actually had to support themselves by payments for their electricity but they don't. And meanwhile, all these plants, the traditional plants that generally support themselves by being paid for their electricity, they, quote, too expensive for the grid. No, they're not. They're just not getting extra money. Uh, they're, they're trying to sell their kilowatt hours to make a living. And as I have a chapter in my book that selling kilowatt hours is a bad deal for a power plant. You got to look for other sources of income. Right, so, so I guess then, what's the consequence? So, you, you, you now have wind. Although I, I did have an interview last week with someone that does behind the uh, meter uh, wind, and they said that they aren't really taking advantage of their customers. At least the recs weren't important to the, the large enterprises. That the, 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 the market they were in, they, they they didn't even go used most of the time, um, and they they thought it was still a cheaper cost. But I, I guess what does that mean for the the average homeowner's power bill or whatever when you have all this going on? So if, if, if a large industry and all these corporations are putting wind and solar up, how does that help me? Does that mean my bill goes down? Does my bill go up? Your bill goes up because you see and, – and you aren't even able to see how your bill goes up because the thing is, depending on where you are, uh, sometimes you have a section of the bill which is basically uh, – what we paid for energy, and then there's another section of the bill, like sort of like everything else, okay? And and the thing is that the the recs go into that everything else section, okay? So your bill is going up, but the energy portion of your bill might actually be going down because uh, the, the the they're buying from wind turbines or whatever. But the 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 overall bill is going up. It, it, it's sort of hidden. As a matter of fact, everything is hidden. To be blunt, it, it is very uh, discouraging. There are sunshine laws uh, for government agencies. Supposedly, you're not supposed to meet in a closed room and, and, and make decisions and nobody can track who said what or anything. You're supposed to be, meetings are supposed to be open. There are no sunshine laws on the grid. Uh, you can't get into the meetings in which these decisions are made. Uh, FERC, some, uh, you can, but it, then you have to go uh, up to the the highest level, and your local grid operator, it's pretty closed. I'm so, sorry to say that. No, no, I, I think that was one of the points that, that you make very clear is, is is kind of trying to expose how these things happen. And so, does that mean then if these companies are making their own power and buying their own power? Does that mean that the grid can be smaller or does the grid still need to have the same scale because you're, they're selling less, right? Because they're, you're, if you're a large Fortune 100, Fortune 1000 you, and you have wind turbines or solar panels and you're getting you know, variable energy when, when the sun's out or when the wind's out, you're not using it. But I think for the most part, these guys are falling back to the grid when it's not in those conditions. So does the grid capacity change? Is there less demand on the grid for this or do you have to build over capacity? Now, the peak demand continues to be as high as ever. I mean, there are times, I mean, it's a truism that there are times when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow. And at that time, you still need the other power plants and you need the grid to provide thing, your power. 
so, you know, it, it depends on so many factors. Like, let's say you're a little island and you use, you don't have any real resources except wind and solar and you import uh, fuel oil or diesel to run the rest of the time. Well, at that point, uh, wind and solar just prevent you from using diesel. So it's a good thing, even if it's only part-time, right? Even if you have to keep 100% uh, diesel capability available, you're still using less less fossil uh, when you're using the wind and solar. But w- w- most of us aren't little islands that are importing everything. We, we have existing uh, power plants. We have existing infrastructure. Uh, and um, you're acting using the grid as a backup, and the power plants that you're using as a backup aren't being paid enough to stay in business because they're not used enough. And so it gets to be very complicated. And by the way, I want to say that uh, when people begin talking about, well, we have to decarbonize with wind and solar, every now and again, I just say, hey, nuclear. And uh, sometimes people go, oh, well, anything but that. I mean, yeah, there's gr- greenhouse gases and global warming, but you mentioned something that's even worse. And I don't think it's even worse, but that I think it's a, a really, it's the important part of, of any kind of decarbonization or any stability for a grid. How, how does that work in the U.S. where, Nuclear plants in Europe, you know, some countries are without it. California, you certainly wouldn't want to be a nuclear plant. But I mean, you know, I think there's certain countries like France that has, you know, fairly strong nuclear capabilities right now, or Switzerland still has a fair amount. But many of them are shutting down. And and you make a a big business case that the the incentives for the things that are getting voted on today by the state governments and all don't leave the, the, the margins that they need to sustain these kind of plants in the future. So how does that remain part of our long-term grid stability, if, if that is what you think is part of the solution? Well, I think it is part of the solution. And I want to say that all these things that the states are voting on and and, and, and wrecks and uh, we can do it all on renewables and so forth and so on, these are all policy decisions that don't have a whole lot to do with how the physical grid works. I mean, and and so, you know, you can reverse a policy decision by signing a piece of paper, the right people have to sign. What I'm, I, I mean is that if you if you close down a nuclear plant, and many have been closed down, it is certainly going to be replaced by fossil fuels. You say, oh, but we're building renewables. You close down that nuclear plant and your percentage fossil fuel will go up because the renewables won't be there all the time that the nuclear plant was. But what about grid-scale scores? So, I mean, so many guests on this podcast, so much money is going into grid storage that sooner or later that 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 has to be cracked, right? So there, there's so many promising technologies, right? You mentioned hydro, which has been around forever, pumped hydro or, or whatever. I mean, then and there's other base loads like uh, closed loop geothermal we talked to, which is interesting. It's just costly. Um, but the, the, there are some base load technologies that are renewable, but then there are also things like iron flow batteries and lithium ion battery tech and all that. So do you not think that it will, that, 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 you know, that over time, over the next, you know, five years, three years, 10 years, that we'll crack that code? I think it's always going to be uncomfortably expensive to do that. And uh, let me let me give you uh, the my ideas on that. Um, let's say you have an ordinary grid, okay, just a regular old grid with different kinds of power plants on it, 
maybe some renewables, but mostly regular power plants, you keep enough power plants on the grid for 20% more than you expect the highest demand to be. That way, if there's a power plant offline or there's some kind of interruption on a transmission to some power plant, you still can satisfy the highest demand. And that has worked well for, for tens of years. Okay, now let's say we're going to go to a grid and let's imagine we have storage and it's grid level and, and so forth. Now, I don't think they're going to be building a lot of pump storage. So when I say storage, I'm going to say some some type of battery, okay? Because I, I can't imagine anybody in this country saying, oh, yeah, why don't you just take a section of that mountain down and make a reservoir there and then put a bunch of turbines at the base by the river and up in the mountain? Yeah, it'll work. It will work, absolutely. But But I don't think they're going to build a bunch of them. So here we have, uh, so here we have, for example, a set of uh, wind turbines, for example, and uh, let's say they can make a hundred percent of the power needed by the grid, and they're ready. They're ready, and the wind is blowing, and they're doing great. Well, fine. Who is charging up that battery? You need another wind turbine when the wind is blowing great to charge the battery for when the wind isn't blowing blowing great, and then you need a battery. So where before you needed 1.2 times the amount of megawatts that are used by the grid at full tilt, now you need three times the wind turbine that's making power for the grid, the wind turbine that's making power for the battery, and the battery. Okay. I, I don't mean to be discouraging, but I mean, you just count. It's just a matter of counting. So so what's your vision? Then? So assuming that you wanted to have heavily renewable, assuming you want to re- reduce emissions, what's the vision for the future? So how do we have a stable grid? And, you know, I want my cake and I want to eat it too, right? So, I mean, I, I know you mentioned nuclear and, and saying, you know, that they're getting shut down. I, I do also know that with the current war in Russia and things like that, that there was even a lobby in the U.S. to, to keep getting uh, uranium from Russia to keep the nuclear plants cheap fuel supply, right? So I think that that was one thing they didn't want to sh- sanction. So what's what's the panacea? How, what's the plan that we do that gets us to a stable grid with policy and an environmentally friendly grid, you know, three years, five years, 10 years out? First of all, we have a lot of uranium in, in uh, the U.S. and in, in, in especially in Canada. Uh, the reason we import from Russia is uranium. It's expensive, more expensive here to, to mine it. And also we don't have facilities to turn the raw uranium into the into fuel pellets uh, and, and we buy the fuel pellets from 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 Russia so at any rate um, I, I am very clear on what my perfect grid would be my perfect grid would be uh, a lot of uh, nuclear plants running base load and people say oh there is no such thing as base load but no there is it's base load is whatever amount of energy is needed from the grid 24 hours a day. And that turns out to be about two thirds of the energy on the grid. The heights, like when we get up in the morning and turn on the lights, that's only for part of the 24 hours. And it's actually doesn't usually go as high as to double what was baseload. So at any rate, um, so you have base load for nuclear for the base load part. Then what about the load following? Well, load following, I think for load following, there might be new nuclear. There could be uh, 
natural uh, gas and uh, renewables, the natural gas backing up the renewables, you understand that now we're looking at a third of the a third of the energy on the grid, not the whole thing, and we're letting the renewables be a big portion of it, and then the natural gas be some of it. The grid, the actual grid we have out there is like 80% or 78% or whatever percent fossil fuel. That's what's going on, okay? And then there's 20% nuclear and, and about 15%, 20% uh, renewables. Okay, 60% fossil fuel. I think it's more like 70, actually. But at any rate, maybe it's 60. But what I'm saying is that's what's really out there. And then people are beginning to say, no, no, we have to look at how we can, how we can completely decarbonize. And I'm like, hey, how about you, you have 60% decarbonization and, and, and 20% natural gas and, and, and 20% renewables. That'd be much better if you're looking at decarbonizing, but people go like, oh no, it doesn't get us where we need to be. And I'm like, this is, this is not, not reasonable. I mean, you may say we need to be at zero, but that means that you're saying 10% is really unacceptable. I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm rather pragmatic. If I um, wanted to buy a new car, I wouldn't say, well, I need this car to be top of the line. I would buy the car that fit what I could buy. You know, even if, you know, people are very concerned with global warming, which I don't think they are, or they would be pro-nuclear. But uh, at any rate, um, wouldn't it be lovely if we could electrify everything with uh, mostly nuclear? I knew your stance coming into this a little bit about nuclear. We talked in the pre-call a little bit about it. So I appreciate covering that. Um, when you talk about buying a new car, you, you triggered something else in my mind. Um, and, and I don't know that all our audience, we have a global audience, about half from Europe, half from North America, understands maybe the grid structure in North America. So we talk about this ISO thing, and then we get this regional ISO type thing, our regional providers. And one thing that was kind of interesting that I didn't understand is how one state's policy might get paid for by another state in this regional model. Um, is that something we could kind of concisely explain to the audience? And because I, I thought that was interesting. So, you know, the, the, you know, you're, you're, you're in a small state and I'm a neighboring state and we, we are on a regional grid for lack of a better a regional distribution network. And we decide to do something in our policy who bears the cost of these things? I thought that was kind of interesting. So, Well, that, that was a whole section I had in the book called FERC 1000 Flies Under the Radar. And basically, it isn't even about the uh, regional transmission organization. It, it, it used to be in terms of transmission, and used to be is like up to like 10 years ago or five years ago, is the the goal in transmission was the people who take advantage of it pay for it. So, for example, many uh, transmission lines were what was called socialized. That is, uh, they might run through Vermont, but Vermont doesn't pay 100% of it. Vermont pays whatever percentage of uh, costs are Vermont's portion of the local grid. So Vermont is only 4% of the local grid. Uh, Connecticut, Boston, we're all, they're all on the grid. They use huge amounts. So if there was a new transmission line that the grid operator says, we must have this for reliability, Vermont would pay 4% of the cost and good old Massachusetts would pay probably 50% or maybe 40% in Connecticut. Anyway, what I'm saying is that it would be paid for in percentage of how much you use it. Now, with the recent FERC 1000, the idea is that you would socialize costs 
that is spread them over a bigger area if their costs were necessary for state policies, which means that I could have a state policy that I need to import uh, wind, wind power from wherever I can get it, including uh, Canada, including uh, the Midwest, whatever, and I need transmission lines for it. That's my policy. And according to FERC 1000, that would be um, socialized. All the different states would use it, pay for it, and, and not, not use it necessarily. It might be my state's policy, and I'm happy as a clam with it because the other states are paying for me, my policy. They haven't had a chance to vote on it. They can't throw the bums out if they don't like it, but they're paying for my policy. And I find, I find that really uh, appalling. Now, if, if you remember back when I talked about how I had joined uh, the uh, consumer liaison group, somebody called me up and, uh, and said, um, you know, why don't you join it? And, and I said, oh, okay, I'll, I'll come to some meetings. Maybe I'll join it. And the person who called me, I asked him why he was in it. He said, at one point, I realized that I could be taxed through my utility bill, and I would not know anything about it, and I would not be able to stop it. And that's why I decided to join this group and see if I could do something about it. And so does the group really influential? Does it do something? I mean, oh, you, no. you're, out, you're out there making noise. You're, you're trying to get people interested in things, but... As I think you say, is you know reporters can't go to some of these meetings, and they're they're fairly closed, and only certain representatives. So, how much say do you really have? I mean, are you just noise, or are you really making a grassroots change? We were noise. I'm going to be blunt about it. We were noise. The consumer liaison group was open to uh, reporters and so forth, and they all came because all the other meetings were closed, and the closed meetings are when the decisions are being made. On the other hand. My feeling is that if you can't um, change things, you're never going to be able to change things if people don't even know they're happening. And so I felt that tell people it's happening is worthwhile. But no, the consumer liaison group was uh, just kind of a uh, in one way it was a it was just a talking point, a bunch of people talking. In another way, I don't know if there was any other. Uh, meeting outside of Washington, D.C., where FERC 1000 was uh, addressed and discussed. And certainly there wasn't another meeting where uh, FERC 1000 was discussed in terms of what would happen in New England. So we did do some things that I considered important. So so who do you normally spend your time talking to? Is it energy enthusiasts, energy insiders, or or general just people that buy energy at their home? Who's your normal... Audience, who, who who likes to read short in the grid? Who likes to hear hear you see speak or read your blog? I'm I'm sorry to say it's mostly energy enthusiasts, but I think I'm breaking out of that mode. Uh, I've been on uh, more general podcasts. I've been on podcasts for investors, and I think I'm beginning to break out of that that mode that energy wonks uh, like me. I, I love energy wonks, but I'm saying that uh, I, you know I don't want it to be 100% energy wonks, uh, and and that's one of the reasons that I wrote Shorting the Grid in an approachable style. There are very uh, uh, complex books out there, uh, mostly written for lawyers about all this stuff, but nobody reads them and nobody knows what's going on. And um, so, and I also, I give little courses at my local community college thing and I, I give talks, but 
I, I wish more people were more interested in it. I think Texas was a wake-up call for a lot of people. It's Everything sort of changed after Texas, I think. But I think in the U.S., right, it, it, as you say correctly, assuming there's gas plants, the U.S. has plenty of gas for years to come. There, there, there's reserves for gas. And so it, you know, from energy security point of view, I think the U.S. is in a, a reasonably good place. From the planet point of view, maybe less so if, if you're trying to decarbonize. But from an energy security and low-cost energy, isn't the U.S. in a good place? Oh, yeah, it is. It is. The thing is, though, that different areas in the U.S. are in terrible places because, for example, uh, New York won't let new, new gas pipelines be built. So there you go. Uh, and when they retire a coal plant, uh, then uh, they can't even get uh, a gas plant. Well, they can build the gas plant, but it may not may or may not be able to get uh, gas to run. Uh, that's one of the things I found really annoying when I was looking at some of the government projections. Projections like, uh, uh, are you are you are you uh, is this grid okay for the winter? And they'd say, oh yeah, it has lots of plants. Um, however. Uh, we the, some of the plants may not be able to get fuel, but 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 that's not we're not looking into that right now. <laughs> it's very discouraging. And, and and what about upgrades to the grid? So one of the recent things I, I've heard quite a bit from folks that are doing renewable is that the legacy grid is still runs very slowly. So decisions to start and stop power and and and, and kind of use maybe fiber optic networks to control and the speed. It is not there, and so maybe that's smart grid. Maybe that's I don't know what they're you know what they're alluding to where they go, but it seems like the command and control is still antiquated. Have you seen that as part of your conversations around the grid as well? Not really, because when you get right down to it, this uh, starting and stopping quickly is 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 because of the uh, the rather uh, spiky nature of uh, many of the renewables. You know, the s- clouds go across the sun very quickly, while on the other hand, if I want to uh, start up a, a, a gas plant or shut it down, it, it, it takes a few minutes. So all this, uh, oh, we got to get it much faster. we got to get much faster. Uh, the people who want to be a, a highly new renewable grid want everything to be flexible. But it, actually, engineering is different from that. Engineering, uh, flexibility, and reliability don't actually necessarily come in the same package. So, for example, if you have a sports car, it's really flexible, you know, boom, really, really accelerates. It, it, it may even be reliable. But is that sports car going to be useful for moving goods from town to town? Well, oddly enough, semis are not flexible, just no acceleration whatsoever. But they are steady. And that's what you need for a grid. You need steady as well as flexible. And, and, and a lot of people who want the new smart grid want 100% flexible, not acknowledging how Electricity is actually used in this country. And then the electrification of everything going on right now. So does concerns of the stability of the grid, are they going to get amplified here as more and more electrification takes place? Because, you know, we're, we're on a mission to electrify just about everything. Well, yeah, it's going to make it harder. And I mean, I was at a meeting the other day where the uh, uh, CEO of our, our local grid, uh, ISO New England, was saying um, if everybody had charging in their uh, garage, we would need a lot uh, more uh, uh, stronger distribution grids, a lot more energy on the grid. And if the grid went down and then came back up again, 
a lot of those batteries, so the car batteries would be like, okay, it's up, let's go. And then I'd bring it down, right down again because there'd be a sudden huge uh, thing, much much more than if the lights in your house just go on. So the sudden demand search, but I think technology could solve for that, right? And that might be an argument for the smart grid, right? Because that, that kind of control you could you could manage more. You could manage it. Right? I mean, right. we went through that with the internet. I mean, I, I spent early part of my career building telephone networks and communication networks, and the same kind of problem if everyone tries at the same time. So I think that could be engineered out. Um, I, I think the demand can't be engineered out, right? So if, if, if you look at, you know, let's say Boston Logan and every car had to charge what was parked there, look at the demand and, and, the, and the capacity you would need just to handle all the cars parked in the Logan parking lot while you're flying. Um, yeah. Yeah, and so, so I think those are the changes I see in the distribution. So, so you wrote this book. You've got folks like me that have become fans that really like <laughs> it. So what are you doing next? Where, where are you going now? So you, you know, you, are you creating another a sequel? Or are you you're just spending time speaking to people? What, what's next on your agenda? Well, what I'm doing now is I'm sort of um, filling in things in my mind that uh, I I was afraid that if I began following those threads, uh, the the grid would be, um, the shorting the grid would be a thousand page book that I'd never finish. So I'm, I'm following some threads, for example, uh, about the history of auctions. And I'm also um, uh, following uh, some threads about the history of fracking. I mean, there's just a lot of things that I'm uh, interested in uh, that I'm I'm following threads on right now, and and they probably will turn into another book, uh, maybe I, I don't know. I don't like to promise to write another book. It's a lot of work. I called this the book that ate Meredith because I kept saying, "Well, I'm sorry, I, I really can't do that." I'm I, I, this book is just keeping me going all the time. I mean, I did go to movies or whatever, but I it it was just an immense effort at the time, just immense. What's the shelf life of this book? So to me, it's still pretty relevant. Uh, I mean, it, to me, I read your book and suddenly started you know, on Utility Drive and other places that see articles. I'm like, oh, okay, that added perspective to this or that. Um, is there a shelf life or, or the, the value of this? You know, three years from now, are people still reading it and getting the same kind of ex- value out or has it become historical pretty soon? Um, no, it's, it's still relevant. Uh, that's a really interesting question that I ask myself a lot about the shelf life of it. Um, it was written before Texas. So the thing is that, it you know, people who study Texas can still refer to the sequence in the book about New England, and it's the same thing. Um, I don't know if it about the shelf life, really, but I think that it will continue to have a long shelf life. Uh, and the reason I say that is that the other major book about the grid by Gretchen Backey called The Grid. Uh, and it's a very different book from mine, but it is old, much older and it's still selling well. And the thing is that there's, until people begin writing more books about The Grid, these older ones, they're still relevant and they're still important. I, I think so. You, you might say, well, but what we need is another book about the European grid and another book about the uh, MISO grid. And I agree. Uh, but in the meantime, Shorting the Grid and Gretchen Backey's book, The Grid, uh, are the only two general, per- well, I shouldn't say the only two, I mean, you know, but the major uh, general purpose grid books out there. Understood. And, and I think the European market's very different. So this is why it was so, as an American, in, in, in being in the energy business, it was very interesting to me. 
Um, I, I think we've had a fantastic conversation. I, I hope our audience has enjoyed going all over the place that we've, we've covered a lot of ground in a short period of time. Uh, Meredith, I want to thank you for being our guest today. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to have been on the program. And for our audience, if you've enjoyed this conversation, I found Meredith's book on Amazon.com. If you look in the show notes, you'll see a link to the book. Uh, I highly recommend reading it. Uh, Once again, you spend another hour of your life listening to Insider's Guide to Energy. I hope you're smarter about the U.S. grid and you find out more information about it. If you've enjoyed the program, please share it, comment, give us likes, and don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. We'll talk to you again next week. Bye-bye.